0: What's up, everyone? Today, we have the pleasure of chatting with the profoundly eloquent Juan Mendoza. Juan is based in Melbourne, Australia, where he got a start in various roles, including startup marketing, MarTech strategy, and conversion rate optimization. He spent four years at the Lumery, a premier MarTech consulting shop, where he worked on customer-centric strategies across various channels. In 2020, he started the MarTech Weekly, a newsletter covering where the industry is going and why. He's also the host of Making Sense of Martech podcast, an extension of his newsletter. And one podcast and one newsletter isn't enough for Juan. In 2022, he teed up with the one and only Scott Brinker and started the big Martech show covering big news and big ideas in Martech. Four months after launching his premium subscription of his newsletter and growing it to over a 1,000 MarTech pros, over 65 countries, Juan decided to go full-time on the TMW and recently announced TMW 100, a global MarTech awards event, ranking the most innovative MarTech technology companies from first to 100th place. Juan, excited to have you uh, on the show, my friend. Not sure why it's taken this long to uh, have you, but uh, yeah, I had the pleasure of speaking with you on, on a few occasions, but yeah, excited to let you get... Get into some topics here. Thanks for being on.
1: Hey, thanks, Phil. I'm a big fan of the uh Humans of Martech podcast, uh and I just hear nothing but good things about you folks. Uh, I think you're climbing the charts at the moment, so I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Definitely big fans of the newsletter too. I think uh John, you're a subscriber as well, Ray. Right? Oh yeah, I've been been a subscriber for years. One of my favorite. Um, issues or edition, uh, TMW number 112, the perils of zero cost content, Uh, probably one of my favorite editions, uh, Juan. I'd love to maybe just start here and and get into some of the topics you raised and allow you to get a bit spicier than you might have time to uh, in your newsletter. So JT, why don't you kick us off with some uh, Gen AI market stuff?
2: Yeah, I mean, chat GPT is all the rage right now. And like despite having, you know, way fewer resources like these giants, open has made this huge dent in the space and is, I think, in a lot of ways kicked off this AI hype and trend trend motion that we're in now. Um, what do you think makes open AI's approach different from Google's and Microsoft's? And how do you think this has influenced Chat GPT's uh development up to this point? And in your view, what was the main driver of their success?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think open AI has been very very focused on uh building large language models um in generative models i mean if you look at the sort of landscape of ai there is a variety of different um platforms and um, different types of technologies out there and you know as big tech gets bigger uh you know entropy sets in uh, you know a lot of diversity not a lot of focus when it comes to ai you know like google amazon meta all these companies have spent billions of dollars on their AI programs, but they haven't been as focused. And ChatGPT, you know, um, is based on the GPT-3 and the G- now the GPT-4 models, which, you know, funnily enough, they came out back in 2000, you know, uh, startups started building... You know, basically what we're seeing today, you know, companies like Jasper and copy.ai, um, copy.ai were building the, basically what we see today, but um, you know, two or three years ago before the hype cycle started. And so, you know, open AI, a lot of funding, extreme focus, extreme patience, you know, building out, you know, one of the most impressive um, large language models out there. Um, and so I think that's kind of one of the differentiators. Hey, like, um, you know, they're a Silicon Valley tech company, you know, they've always had, you know, they've had backing from Elon Musk, they've had backing from Microsoft, they've had backing from from some of the biggest venture capital firms in the world, but their their goal wasn't to try and embed AI into a variety of different services and products, but rather to have that extreme focus to build something that obviously manipulates language as well as it does, um, and it does feel magical. I mean, you know, there's nothing that quite is quite like it. Even Google's Bard is just not um hasn't got the same level of accuracy and it doesn't hallucinate you know it hallucinates way more than um chat gpt and so i think that's sort of the main reason and also i mean what's hilarious about the generative ai stuff is that you know we had chatbots back in 2016 i don't know if you guys remember mm-hmm. this right like you know when i when i started my career Everyone wanted a chatbot. Everyone wanted to hook up some automated agent that would be on Facebook Messenger or, you know, or on your website. And they were crap. They were awful, right? And like every brand got onto it. And basically the feedback from the consumers was this is like worse than staying on the line for customer service <laughs> for hours. You know, it was worse. And the hilarious thing about ChatGPT now is that when they launched it back in November, uh, just last year, it was just a single chat interface. You know, that that's all it was. And uh, it, and now it's transformed into hundreds of thousands of different startups building off the back of this idea of all you need is a chat interface and uh, an AI agent that is actually smart and give you good answers.
0: Yeah, it's wild to see how, how much it's changed in, in a small period of time. I remember like when... Copy.ai came out and and Jasper and like everyone was claiming like, yeah, yeah, like you can use AI to write content for you. Like I remember being so skeptical about it. And like, I remember like doing the free trials and playing around with it and being kind of impressed like sometimes, but like disappointed other times. But like when Chad GPT came out, uh, like just GPT-3, like uh, before it even went to 3.5 or 4, like just the ability to just have like a long form conversation with a, a large language model like was like the 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 light bulb moment for me and like seeing how fast it's evolved like I don't know anyone like even in my social circles like my parents use ChatGPT like it's it's wild to see how like uh, wide it's kind of went in terms of of adoption there it's uh yeah it's it's a unique piece of technology for sure
1: what's interesting is and, and to your point that. ChatGPT is one of the fastest growing apps in the world. You know, they reached, I think, a million users in five days. You know, it took like the second largest, which was like Instagram and then TikTok. You know, uh, it took them weeks and months to get to a million users. It took ChatGPT five days. Uh, And it really speaks to like, you know, the quality of a product or the right time, you know, like... Uh, you know, I think ChatGPT's idea was just so simple: log in for it, create an account, and then start chatting. That's all you needed to do; nothing else. You know, which I think was part of the brilliance of how they they grew. But I wanted to challenge you because um, Snap just came out with some um, some stats just this week. They've got 125 million users uh, and more than 10 billion messages sent with their uh, they call it the Snap uh, AI, My AI, which is the Snapchat AI tool that w- within the app and um, And they've got these staggering numbers and they've only been live two months. So it took ChatGPT four months, four to five months to get to 100 million users and took Snapchat two months. And I wonder what's going on there if it's just that, you know, they're kind of riding this hype cycle in full force now that ChatGPT has established a market. Or if it's just a generational shift, like young people just want to get into this more, you know, and then Snapchat is a place for young people. The last time I checked, I mean, it's been around for a while. I don't know if you guys are on it, but, um, but you know, it's, it's, again, it's, I want to challenge you because I say, well, there are other companies that are growing just as fast as ChatGPT right now.
0: Yeah. And, and my social friends, I, I don't know anyone that still uses Snapchat. I definitely used it when, when I was a bit younger, but yeah, I, I didn't even know that they uh, had released an, an AI version of it, so I'll uh, I'll definitely check that out for sure. Um, I wanted to like also dive into like uh, we had uh, Mike Rizzo on the cast, and and we chatted a bit about. Um, uh, Apple's release of uh, Vision Vision Pros, and we talked a bit about the metaverse. And he actually said that um, you know Juan is very skeptical about uh, the metaverse, and and we talked about Web three a little bit there. And you know, I'd be putting it likely lightly if I said that you you were a skeptic of, of the metaverse and and Web three. Um, recently, you kind of drew parallels between the hype surrounding AI and and some of these aforementioned trends, essentially arguing that like AI may be in its own tech bubble, so to speak, despite like the unprecedented potential of applications. Uh, my question is, how should we think about distinguishing hype and early adoption appeal from genuine transformative potential between AI and the metaverse or, or web three like is, is genii just the new dogecoin or do you think there's way more substance to it that could lead to sustainable development mm.
1: great question uh i think it's the question a lot of people are asking right now if i could say one thing uh just open us up on um, this topic around hype and tech trend cycles and things like that, is i think that a lot of us are exhausted by it <laughs> i'll probably just yeah. open it up with that is that like we are actually like we just there is just so much stuff and so many people trying to push a latest trend that we I think a lot of people just go offline. They don't, they're not interested. Um, and that's the conversations I have, particularly with senior folks, like the folks that are running teams, folks that are sending budgets, they are tired of getting generative AI pitches um, prior to that, Web3, crypto, um, you know, metaverse pitches, the consultants coming in with the flashy deck saying, you know, you should embrace the future. I was like literally at the start of 22, 2022 last year um i was at a uh, like a intern, we did a presentation on email marketing very boring for um uh for this company right 150 staff marketing team you know tech company and they had an internal field day right and they got um us to do a talk about boring email marketing and they had uh, a rep from meta talk about the metaverse and then they had an ad agency follow them up and both meta and the ad agency at this conference where they were just basically pumping the metaverse. Like their entire talk track wasn't about why you should care about the metaverse. It was how do you prepare for the metaverse as marketers so that you don't get left behind? And it was just this absolute, I think intellectually dishonest prior to say that, you know, you should be getting prepared for something without actually asking the questions as to why you should even consider it in the first place in your marketing strategy. Or, you know, even if this trend will be will be sort of continuing. So to touch on, you know, and I'm, I'm going to call out some consultancy companies. So, so I don't know if this will, I don't know if this will uh, cause a bit of controversy, but you know, when <laughs> we're in the middle of the metaverse hype cycle, right? So this was back towards the end of 2021. Um, where Mark Zuckerberg unveiled his vision for the metaverse. And it was a 10 minute long video, very cringy, very like a utopian sort of view, right? Like put on an Oculus VR headset, embrace these digital worlds. You know, you'll be able to use cryptos and NFTs to trade and transact with people, you know, and open up all these opportunities for connectivity. You know, he announced his billions of dollars of investment into the space. So when he triggered that, everyone got on board and i think that it really speaks to and here's the criticism is that um a lot of the top consultancies and the research firms uh came out with a very uncritical view of mark zuckerberg's vision for the metaverse i'll give you an example here um mckinsey and company they said that the metaverse will generate more than 5 trillion dollars in value by 2030 hmm. accenture said that uh the metaverse will generate more than a trillion dollars by 2025 uh bloomberg you know uh, financial analysis they said just under a, a, a trillion dollars by next year uh and so when you look at this and you think about it, it it's it kind of reflects maybe the lack of intellectual rigor in assessing trends clearly clearly you know uh, there is something to be said about new hype and new trend but the metaverse and web 3 were all promises and no delivery you know the iphone took 5 years to be, to reach mass Uh, consumer market penetration five years and we look at the iphone now as one of the biggest shifts in consumer um, experiences online Um, the biggest shift in how people develop software and apps Uh, the biggest shift in mobile computing and technology but it took them five whole years from 2007 right through to 2012 um, to actually uh, get the right momentum going And they've been writing it for a decade ever since. Mm -hmm. And so when a trend starts with promises and roadmaps and ideas and not actual products, what ends up happening is it it goes nowhere because people get tired. I mean, we Mm certainly see that now with generative AI. I mean, people, if you look at Google Trends, it's following the same curve as NFTs, um, you know, as uh, people are searching for it less because hype is exhausting. Like, keeping pushing the hype machine going, people just lose interest. I mean, I don't know if you guys traded Pokemon cards in high school or in primary <laughs> school. Man, I did. And I, I think it's exactly the same pattern. It's that you've got people that, you know, young people, and you've got all kinds of people saying, this is going to be the cool thing, and they'll trade Pokemon cards feverishly for like a month, and then it'll disappear, and then we'll be on to Yu-Gi-Oh, and then we'll be on to Digimon, and then we'll be on to the next whatever hyped thing in in primary or high school where you're trading cards, and and and, and so. That's the thing that really disappoints me about, particularly in the MarTech industry, is that so many people got into this unquestionably without looking at it critically. And yeah. really, from the start, you know, that's, I guess, what we do at the MarTech Weekly. We try and take a critical edge on these things, including generative AI. I mean, the difference with Gen AI is that it's an actual functional product with tangible right. utility. Mm-hmm. You can use it today. It's not a promise. It's not a dream. It's actual physical uh, reality that people can use today. But, But that's kind of my view, is that we need to be more critical about tech trends. Mm-hmm.
2: I I really like the way you broke that down. Like I kind of think like we're we're in this hype cycle. There's a lot of grifters and people selling stuff and promoting their prompt courses and stuff. But underneath of that, there I think for a lot of us, we're like, no, there's some transformative impact here. But what you said really resonated with me. Like the iPhone took five years, but this is now like a core piece of technology in our day-to-day world. Maybe for our listeners, like you about the intellectual rigor, like. For people who are kind of on LinkedIn thinking, oh man, I gotta buy this course or do this or do that, like how do you sort out the hype from the the transformative Martech that's happening here?
1: Hmm. That's a really great question. I mean, it is hard, right? Like I think that uh like groupthink and um and I guess the the, the overall mechanics of hype. Uh, it's very easy for people to get sucked into it. That's the first thing, mm-hmm. you know, if everyone's pointing at something and saying, you know, it's like a car, you know, when you see a car accident on the highway and all the cars slow down and, the, and there's a, literally a car jam because everyone wants to look at the, at the car accident. That's, that's just group thinking play, right? It's like something interesting is happening over there. Let's go check it out. Right. we're, we're so vulnerable to our own psychological um, weaknesses, I think that it is hard to avoid getting involved or not looking at this stuff critically in the moment. So you know um but i think there is a few few aspects to it i think a lot of the the trends that have staying power have some kind of um device shift in them right so like when we look at the internet we went from mainframes in in businesses and in corporations and academia to a personal computer that was a platform shift that brought us the internet you know laying fiber optic cables across the atlantic ocean is a Obviously, that's not a device, but that's physical products that are being laid so that you can access the internet. That's a platform shift. You know, the iPhone, platform shift. Um, you know, uh, even like Apple Watch and like mobility and wearables, platform shift. I mean, it'd be interesting to look at, say, for example, because um, we're on a podcast, how many uh, people listen to podcasts more because they wear their AirPods more, right? Again, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's a device shift. And so the first thing I think about is what's a device shift here? And who's who's building it and how does it work? I think that's the first question you might want to ask is like, is there actually a device shift? Because device the tangible devices we use are actually the mediator for most of what we do in marketing and and of course what um what consumers do as well. So that's the first thing. The second thing I think is, you know, the hard growth numbers, right? Like, you know, sure. Uh this one you have to be a bit careful about. But like if we go back to the chat GPT example, yes, they grew very quickly. Doesn't mean they're going to continue to grow like that, but you know, getting to a 1 million to a hundred million users, particularly in the U S is a massive deal. And that's a, you know, you can kind of almost tick the box and say, yep, that's mass, mass adoption, right? Like mass adoption is the real test here. If like, if your cousin that, you know, has only played banjo and lives out in the neck of the woods, you know, and and works as a contractor somewhere, you know, works as a concreter, he's using JATCHEP GPT, right. That's probably a good signal. You know, my wife came home the other day and she said, uh, you know, her colleague at work, she's a teacher, is using ChatGPT to write the responses for uh, <laughs> for uh, grading of students and, and doing like the assessment of students. And I'm like, man, that's pretty dystopian. But like, <laughs> that's a good signal, right? Like when the dumbest people on the earth use the technology is a good signal for mass adoption, right? And, you know, there's a lot of dumb people out there, mass consumers, you know, not everyone has got the technical sophistication as um you folks are on the call, right? So I think that's the second one is like, you know, the growth and the adoption, but But it has to be substantiated. You know, when we saw what we saw with Web3 was like literally hundreds of Ponzi schemes running at the same time. We had Mm -hmm. companies that were saying, hey, jump in early, get this token, invest in it, and we're going to 10x your results. You know, we had FTX saying that. We had Binance saying that. We had, you know, all of the major, you know, doodles, um, you know, uh, board A.T.O. club. It was a that was a lot of. Ad- uh, consumer adoption growing very quickly, but for one specific category, which is usually sort of the technologists and on a claim, a financial speculation claim. And so the I think the growth tra- trajectory has to follow the actual utilization of the product or the software. Um, that, that's really important. If it's based on financial speculation, then you're probably, probably going to have a, a peak and then and then it'll die into winter. And that's what we're saying with Web3 right now. They made a, a lot of these, especially like Axie Infinity, if you remember that play-to-earn game, very interesting, mm-hmm. you know? And you kind of wonder, it's like they, they showed all these amazing growth numbers and they're all coming somehow from the Philippines. And you're like, why? okay, why is everyone in the Philippines using it and not in the US? Oh, it's because... It's a very poor country, and they need to make. And the people are using it to make money, and so I, you have to follow the growth trends there as well. um And I think like a question to ask yourself when you're looking at trends is this: Does this genuinely help people? Like, look at it ethically. Does it make people's lives better? Does it alleviate some form of suffering? Does it create economic opportunity in ways that is real and tangible for people? You know, the success of the internet is the success of. Billions of people finding economic opportunity and ways to connect with each other online, and that's why we use it every single day, all day. That's why well, the average American will be online eight hours a day at least. You know, it's because it creates so much value for people, and it cre- and you know, in a lot of ways, it makes the world better. So I think those sort of the three questions you might want to ask yourself when you're thinking about trends and and how you might want to talk about it as well. I mean, please just don't jump on the hype train. Think about it critically. That's my message. <laughs>
0: I love it. Yeah, that's a a great message, especially resonate with like the the third point that you said there like what is the value that you're actually getting from this tool and that was kind of like the thesis of uh the the fourth part of like the big ai deep dive that that we did on on our podcast when we kind of looked at like the tools and and looked at like how do you kind of like separate the 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 diamonds in the rough because like there there is so many of these like gimmicky tools that are just like slight tweak on chad gpt that are like uh like you chirped uh grammarly that they they released like their new like AI function like Notion has a function to like everyone is racing to add Gen AI to to their product roadmap and like you, anyone's opening a SaaS tool right now and it's like try our new AI tool right. And like none of these folks or, or like uh, at least like ahead of time, we're really focusing on like making this a core piece of the product and moving it forward. But that being said, like there is definitely some disruptors and and folks that have been disrupting with AI for for a long time and not just like since Gen AI came out and from a marketing lens like there's a lot of cool applications that we kind of dived into on the cast like predictive analytics like doing propensity models and allowing marketers to um, predict a likelihood to churn or predict likelihood to like receive or like have positive reception to this promotional message there's there's a lot of like these folks that are doing cool stuff that isn't just like something built on top of GPT-4 and they're just just like uh, paying a license fee on, on, on those tokens there. But yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, topic. Like I feel like in the space right now, there's two main reactions from a consumer standpoint about Gen AI. Um, we talked about like this feeling of like being tired, like everyone is tired about the hype, like everyone's like got a LinkedIn post or a podcast episode about AI. Like it's super hard to, to carve through the noise right now. But there's also a group of folks that are, scared about generative AI. And I want to chat about some of those folks a little bit here. Like I I chatted in front of some students uh, locally at a university that are about to graduate in a couple of months. And most of the questions that I got about gen AI were like folks that had trouble sleeping at night because they were worried that entry-level marketing jobs were being replaced today with chat GPT. like, especially on like the content writing side. So I'm curious to like dive into this like dehumanization aspect about uh, AI and in these tools right now, like you you explored this this idea of like the potential dehumanizing effect of AI in um in one of your your newsletter. Uh, one of your newsletters, noting that it's kind of like increasingly taking over the creative tasks that are traditionally defined uh, human roles. Like a lot of folks have always said, like, AI is never going to be able to replace creative tasks. The irony here is the term dehumanizing is arguably one of AI's biggest selling points, especially in uh, corporate America, right? Like reducing monotonous tasks, saving uh, costs on workforce how do you think that like we should be striking a balance between maximizing the efficiency gains that we get from AI and also maintaining elements human elements in in this work topic there? Like uh, I'd love to to chat about this because we are the humans of Martech. So let's chat about dehumanizing in, in Martech <laughs> with AI. Yeah,
1: that's the irony, right? Uh, Jumping on the humans of Martek to talk about um, dehumanization. I mean, that's (laughs) hilarious in itself. But I think, yeah, there's a lot to think about here because there is this whole mainstream piece about AI doomerism, right? You know, which is basically saying... Is this bringing us to the end of the world? Is it going to turn on us? You know, and that's all an interesting conversation. And, you know, if I could say one comment just on that before we move on to dehumanization is that it is a very smart guerrilla marketing tactic from the folks from OpenAI and other AI products. You know, Sam Altman's been traveling the world. He actually, I'm based here in Melbourne, Australia. He actually, he was just in Melbourne, Australia last week, and you couldn't even get a seat. Um, You know, it's uh, people Mm. are rushing to his events and and he's doing a bunch of political press conferences and you think about that and you're like yeah the the ai regulation doom loop you know is a, a brilliant marketing strategy because well they'll be set up by terminator too right you know this was tw- 10 20 years ago people have been thinking about ai doom for a long time and they're just mm-hmm. tapping into an existing societal fear and it's great for them because they can influence politics and it's also great for their marketing and their awareness as well right very viral very smart but also i would say very uh you would have to be a bit careful about what they're what they're saying because there are some very strong incentives so, uh, okay, that out of the way, dehumanization. Okay, well, when we think about dehumanization, what is it? What is dehumanization? Well, it's when you take humans out of a process. It's when you um, disincentivize humans to do things. It's when you under, um, undervalue or devalue the the um, the identity or the, uh, the the skills or the outputs or the outcomes of people. That's how I understand it. I mean, if you look at communist Russia, they, they ran a dehumanization campaign when revolution happened in 1920. 1920, right through to 1925, they, they basically took all the goods from from farmers and from factory workers and sent their whole country into a famine, so much so that the Americans had to come in and help them. Um, but they they ran a dehumanization campaign because there were certain classes of people that weren't seen as human. So they weren't seen, they were seen as less than human. And you saw that with Nazi Germany as well. They were seen as less than human people. So so in, in their worldview, it was totally fine to exterminate those people, send them into poverty, send them into famine, um, and take all their goods and, and belongings. So that is like, I want to put, open up and go, well, when thinking about AI, we're not talking about Nazi Germany or communist Russia here, you know, but I wanted to start with a bit of an idea around, well, what is dehumanization? And to me, that's an extreme form of dehumanization. Like That's atheistic dehumanization where people are not treated as people anymore. Um, they're either treated as labor so that they can feed the machine or they're treated as, um, as less than humans, like animals and then exterminated. And so, when you look at ai and this is a huge sh- mental shift but let's go into ai and talk about the tech okay so this technology can um can give you a, a smart answer back it, it gives you a pattern match so it doesn't have internal logic or reasoning it does it has a form of memory where it can retrieve the conversations from the past i'm just talking about chat, chat gpt right now okay so in that instance you have um something that can that looks like it reasons like a human And it can give you a response back. And when you discuss with it, it feels like you're talking with a person. And you look at that and you're like, okay, well, what does it do to the world when you can have intelligent conversations with a being that is not a human? And we're starting to see this with influencers are starting to build AI apps to replicate themselves based on their content. Um, and sell subscriptions so that people can use an AI to have a parasocial romantic relationship. Okay, so here's the irony. Nazi Germany, communist Russia, the, the, it was an oppressive government forces that dehumanized people. Generative AI gives us the opportunity to dehumanize ourselves. So when an influencer puts... Their, their products and their services out there and says, you can access a generative, generative AI model of me and talk to me, um, that's dehumanizing themselves. And I think that's the biggest problem here is that we'll probably, as a society, we look at this and we go, yeah, we'll take away all the things that make us human, creativity, our ingenuity, our human spirit, You know, all of those things that are really valuable to us and all those things that like make life great Do we want to automate them away? And I don't know, it's an open question. I mean, interesting to you guys to have a think about that. Because to me, I think that this is the barest case on a generative AI, because I think automating the good stuff, like being able to write really well, or being able to create images or videos, or be able to, you know, just be a creative, make songs, you know, have conversations, learn the things that you want to learn, you know, going through university all those things are really good for us, all right? They're really good for us. They're good for society and they're good for people to do them, not AIs. And so that's my main argument is that that's the bare case is that people will wake up and realize, okay, actually, no, um, we do not want to do this because we don't want to embrace these generative AI models because it'll take away so much uh, from what we actually want to do ourselves.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, definitely like fascinating to, to meditate on this idea. Like I think for me like there's a part of me that's just like these tools are helping me potentially in some cases be more creative like in, in a previous episode, we uh we used Owler to transcribe our, our podcast transcript. Uh and we turned that into a blog post. We use Midjourney for like headers. Like we were doing shit that like I could have done manually before, but uh, I did it faster with these AI tools. And I, I feel like I was still being creative, but yeah, like the example you gave about like the influencer, like building a, a model of, of themselves and, and dehumanizing themselves, like that's Taking it a, a step further, for sure. And I, I, I like, you talked about creativity there. I think that, like, um, despite, like, all the progress in, in tools like Midjourney and, like, Photoshop's Gen AI, Dali, like, all of those tools, like, you, you just mentioned this, too, and you say this in, in a couple of your newsletters you argue that like these are merely kind of fun and, and helpful in, in some edge cases. And, um, you know, there's that little chance that maybe Gen AI tools could, uh, replace marketing creativity. Uh, some people do think that is possible. Some people don't. Um, I, I want to play devil's advocate on, on your argument. I'll, I'll give you a couple of points and, uh, I'll flip it back to you. We can have a, a bit of a debate here, but I'm, I'm kind of on the fence, but I'll, I'll, I'll take the one side just, just for the sake of the debate. Um, If I told you, Juan, five years ago that today you'd be able to use this chat UI to help you come up with blog post ideas, email subject lines, suggest messaging frameworks based on user research, it can write poems for you, suggest marketing tactics, create stunning music, build landing pages with a few words. You would have told me five years ago that I was insane if you could do this, like today and i think a lot of people would agree with this and this all happened in record-breaking time like that's the 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 piece that like those like doom doomers can hold on to is how fast this shit is going gpt4 is already mind-blowingly better than 3.5 isn't it silly to assume that like gpt6 or gpt7 or gptn won't ever be able to replicate human creativity like even in 10 years there's there's a couple of like uh, other pieces here. I'll, I'll and and then I'll throw it back to you. While not a perfect way to assess uh, performance for for humans, there's this well known creativity test that GPT four is already outperforming ninety percent of humans on. Um, yeah. There's this really good uh, Twitter poll that I found. Fifty percent of AI experts that responded uh, that took this poll think that eventually GPT n will reach the creativity level of top human artists. Um, so yeah, like, I'm, I'm curious, the, the debate here, like creativity and, and the impacts there with, uh, with GPT are, are definitely fascinating.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess my question to you, Phil and, 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 John is that, you know, how good is your handwriting? How good is your handwriting? <laughs> John's good? way
2: better
0: than me.
1: Yeah. My
2: handwriting? No, I, yeah. mine looks like a uh, prescriptions.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mine, mine too. Mine's awful. Right. But you know, if we were having this, I guess we wouldn't be having a podcast. Let's say we're all sitting around in 1950, um, all of our handwriting would have been excellent. We would have been writing in cursive, writing in books.
0: Yeah. You know? We would have been we'd smoking have, cigars have... and, and having some whiskey too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, up in uh, Madison Avenue for sure. Right. <laughs> but like, but, but the whole, well, the reason I asked the question is that technology has a, um, a function in it that it makes human skills impotent. So at one point, you know, Like I look, I think about like European cities often, you know, like I was just recently in Barcelona and you go into the old town and the old town is like, you know, it's got all these alleyways and it's beautiful. Just architecture is amazing. Just a great place to be around people walking around, not a lot of traffic. And then you go outside of the old city into the new city they built um, about a hundred years ago. And it's all designed for cars and there's highways, right? And the U S has got this sort of same issue where like a lot of cities are designed for cars, you know, and, but like, The whole, where I'm going with this is that that there there is periods in history where we become very good at certain things because we have to. And then there are periods in history where, you know, for example, the the shift from cities being people-centric to car-centric was driven by technology, not by philosophy, not by politics. It was actually driven by new technology, you know, combustion engine, four wheels, let's go, right? We don't need to have horses anymore. It also created categories like Walmart and big shopping centers because the way why would you go to a big box shopping center when you have to walk twenty miles down the road with your groceries? The car kind of gave rise to the shopping center and having all of it in one space in a location is a bit separated from the rest of where we live. And so technology has this has this transformation effect on society. However, impotence is a really important thing to think about here. You know, where like I'm my handwriting is awful because I don't use it. I but my touch typing is amazing. You know, so the shifts in balance of skills is very different. When you think about creativity, you know, we've seen this whole thing about you know prompt engineers and people being paid to write prompts. That's just another abstraction, right? Like it's just another way to go. Hey, you know, these there's people that are building skills. Previously, they probably were, were writing their own stuff, and maybe they're writing prompts now for generative AI to create images and photos and videos and all those things in um, text and so i i think that you know with the with the creativity aspect i think there is opportunities for it to be transformative in how we create things i mean i'm not sure if you guys have seen a lot of the drake mashups with different artists yeah. using yeah like ai songs you know and it's fascinating right mm-hmm. like uh, it's really cool but all of it's a big derivative i mean mm-hmm. you know and and this is the thing it's that if we i think there will be two classes of creatives I think there'll be two different groups. There's going to be the growth hacker groups that say, yeah, we can scale communication, scale content, scale whatever, right? And do it quickly, you know? And, um, and those folks will have, they'll just have less original ideas. I mean, when it comes to marketing creativity, it's all about the idea, huh? Like it's all about the inspiration, the idea, the insight that you can deliver a message to a consumer that resonates, it's unique, it cuts through. I don't think Gen AI is going to get us there. It may help with the process, maybe, but yeah. I think that there will be folks that will be um, focusing on authenticity and giving that as a value proposition to their customers. I'm thinking about like ad agencies and like mm-hmm. creative agencies and folks that work in the creative industry in marketing. There'd be folks that be like, no, actually we don't use AI, right? We're getting a lot of difference of opinions. Mm-hmm. So we have, for example, BBDO, have said um, that they want all of their team. So BBDO, big global ad agency, they said they want all their team using generative AI tools. And then the other side, you have like publicists saying, no, nah, not allowed. We do not want it at all, right? There's a lot of chaos, a lot of conflict in the creative departments of, and yeah. advertising and marketing. And so i think you know, that's one of the things we have to think about well you know does it enhance our creativity or does it make us impotent you know like mm-hmm. the same argument can be applied to cars like if a self-driving cars become the mainstream thing and we lose our ability to drive what does that do to society mm-hmm. you know and it's the same thing with generative ai like i just spent so for the martech weekly one or tmw 100 um our new awards event really excited i so i paid my illustrator, Angela, more than $1,500 to create a custom poster for us, you know, and I could have, I appreciate that. Thank you. But why it's because out of that creative process with me and her Angela, um, and she's in the UK, we collaborated, we worked together on what the message should be, what the organizing idea should be for our event. And it came to us through that process, many zoom calls and thinking and concepts Mm -hmm. and drafting, but you can't get to those ideas without doing that work, and so I think that's it's it's. I haven't got any clear answers right now, but my view is that there's a real big potential for impotence, and that you'll never have good ideas if you use the tool. And there's opportunities to to create amazing stuff, like all the really interesting music that's coming out right now, and even the humans. Like I reviewed some of the cover art for this episode, and some of them make me look like a um, like a. I don't know, like a, make me look like a goblin, but then some of them look like a, like a hiker from Switzerland, right? Like, you know, um, so, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, it just, it's so hard to comprehend what impacts it might have on creativity, but I am interested in your thoughts.
2: I really wanted to dig into your point around the, the, the whole, we're giving it away ourselves. And this whole adoption curve, we're ultimately on the marketing side, we're in control of budgets, we're in control of the outcomes, we're in control of the processes. So if we choose to use AI to replace human jobs, or as Phil has described earlier, like the subtle shift of using otter.ai, ChatGPT, instead of maybe Phil and I find some money and hire an intern to do this, like these subtle shifts in job creation. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the choices that we make day to day and some of the ethical, moral choices that may be top of mind for you right now.
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple... Like when we think about the day-to-day work, say of a knowledge worker or of somebody who works in marketing, you know, I think there's a few things. Like, the first thing is privacy. I mean, you know, there there is increasingly cases coming out of, you know, people giving trade secrets into ChatGPT that work for an enterprise company. It's probably a no-no, you know, have a think about what kind of information you want to give it. You know, whenever I use these, like, for example, ChatGPT, I use it regularly now, but um, but I never give it any specific information, right? it's, it's never, I'm never giving it data. I'm never giving it specifics on people or um, context or anything like that, but I'm wanting to get an answer. So I kind of use it to go, I need an answer for this. You know, yesterday we'll work out. I've, I've lost a lot of my talking about impotence. I've lost a lot of my Excel skills of, as I started writing for TMW, you know, I used to be like in Excel every day doing an analysis and um, I forgot how to do a V lookup. It's really embarrassing. <laughs> um, you know? Yeah. And I forgot how to do it. And like, I was like, crap. Okay. So ChatGPT like ta- retaught me how to do a VLOOKUP and gave me the code to do it. And, um, you know, that's a good example, but I'm like, I needed to do it because um, because we've got a big database of contacts. We, we want to do some analysis on that database. And, um, you know, I didn't want to give it the actual data. So I did some dummy data to give it an example. So I think the privacy is really just a really basic one. I mean, using these tools, it's it's more detailed. It's collecting more data than Google search. Um, so I think it's really important. It also can sort of feedback on data and um, the in- inputs you give it. So I think that's an important one, um, first of all. I think other, other than that, um, I think that the big opportunity generative AI is going to be the boring stuff. It's going to be, you know, create 10 versions of the same message. We've got the idea. We've got the email copy. We want 10 different versions for for 10 different regions. There's a great startup called Bria, um, which I met just a few months ago. And they're doing this with images where in your typical digital asset manager, um, they've got a tool in there that, that takes one image and then regionalizes it for, say, global marketing. So you have a couple on the beach and maybe they're white caucasians and uh the jet you can ask it to turn those two people into asians or to turn them into african americans you know and so that that's a really interesting idea around like versioning out content doing some of that drudgery that doesn't need to be happening Mm -hmm. i think that's an interesting one think about like you know where you can get a bit of an exponential outcome out of something that you're doing um and also like i think the interesting thing is that generative ai although it is training off the back of huge data sets and nothing super original. It does just give you options to think about stuff, right? Like, you know, I use chat GPT for a bunch of things recently, particularly around criteria, um, particularly around some of the questions I should be asking my lawyers around the TMW 100 event. And I was just asking questions and it kind of helped me see some of the blind spots maybe. So that's helpful, but like, I would never use it to create an S write an essay for me. For example, you know, write a thousand, 3000 word essay, Never get it to write an essay for me, but I'll get it to go. I'll ask questions to it, maybe just to see if there's some blind spots, you know, or if there's some companies that are interesting that I should look at based on my essay or other sometimes rephrasing some things, you know, like headlines and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I like the joy of like TMW. We write, you know, we write Three out of four, three out of five days, at least we're writing. Sometimes four out of five days we're writing. It's because we love writing, you know, me and my team, people help me research. I love writing. It's a big part of my job, big part of our career, my career. Um, And, you know, there's authenticity that comes out of that. So there's no way I'm going to be outsourcing some of that. So I think that, you know, the boring stuff, like the medium to low risk type stuff where you're wanting to get some ideas or inspiration, maybe, you know, but you have to be careful about privacy. You have to be careful about how much you give it, how much you give generative AI in terms of your actual workload. Yeah,
0: I think the the day that uh, you start writing TMW with uh, ChatGPT, everyone's gonna know right away because it's nowhere near as spicy and uh, as creative as <laughs> as you are for sure. But I love I love the the angle of of privacy. Um, what do you think about like trust and and transparency also in this this ethical dilemma with like the dehumanization aspect of it? Like for me marketing isn't just about crunching numbers and trying to predict trends. It's not like this cold analytical process, even though sometimes we are in Excel and and just analyzing data. It's this like vibrant conversation that we're having with our customers. And like, we're trying to come up with ideas that are innovative and are going to like motivate people to want to like change. Right. It's, it's about understanding these customers, these people, their dreams, their needs, their fears, when algorithms start to replace this human connection, um, this, this this idea that like we're risking compromising the very essence of, of what marketing stands for. Um, this ethical dilemma in in and how we can use AI to enhance marketing efforts while ensuring we respect our customers' rights to privacy, autonomy, uh, like you kind of mentioned, but also this idea of like authentic engagement. Want to ask you a question around this. Like, should do you do you think at some point like industries should think about Implementing this idea of like a right to know rule where companies must disclose if content was generated or curated by AI when we collect data and we use ai should we be upfront about the why we're doing this around like privacy and and just kind of like transparency and should we give people the option of opting out of some of those things like considering the rise of, of ai and how everyone is coming up with a gen ai um how how should how should people think about addressing that trust and transparency issue yeah there's
1: it's interesting like there's there's a, a great quote from um, yuval noah harari uh, you know, he's an author, a bit of a thought leader, you know, and he says, you know, if I'm having a conversation with someone and I cannot tell whether it is a human or an AI, that's the end of democracy. And I kind of believe, I kind of agree with that. I mean, if you don't know if there's a human on the other end and look, I don't know about you guys, but I get a lot of pictures and a lot of spam emails, and a lot of cold outreaches. And I reckon 90% of them aren't humans that are generating those, it's most of it. We've been running on automation for a long time now to not right. really trust what's in our inbox unless you've actually had a conversation with them in the real life or on Zoom. But um, but yeah, I think that like there is there is the challenge there, right? Like you don't know if it's a human that's having a conversation with you. Uh, the deepfake problem is massive, right? You know, uh, when, um, so when, uh, when the news that Donald Trump was going to be indicted, for his um, for his holding of of um, documents, you know, uh, top secret confidential documents in Mar-a-Lago. You know, um, someone did a generative AI photo, you know, out of mid-journey of, of, of police and it went nuts, right? People thought it was real. Same thing with, if you remember, this is a while ago, Pope in a coat, you know, someone did a, gener- used a mid-journey to create a photo of uh, Pope, the Pope in a Balenciaga white coat, puffer <laughs> coat, you know, and it kind of looks real, right? It looks so real. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and like, even like um, Unreal Engine, you know, in the gaming world, there's some games coming out right now uh, that look, so human, like it, you just—it's it, unbelievable how real they look. It's incredible, and so we're getting photorealism. We're very close to photorealism in gaming, which is sort kind of the elite edge of you know computer processing, graphic design, you know all of those things. um And then you have this sort of like a way to spoof things, content, photos, videos. What this does, and like we know we live in a postmodern world now, right? Like you know everyone's got their own belief system, their own opinion. Your truth is your truth. Uh, But what this does is it takes us to the extreme logical conclusion of that is that you can't trust anything. You can't trust anything online. You can't. And and what that does, if there's no trust on the internet, and you know, this is fascinating because it's like the inverse of Web3 in that, Mm. and Web3 was like trustless, trustless, trust the data, don't trust people, right? And what we realized was that even in those Web3 protocols and blockchains, all of that stuff, you actually still needed to trust middlemen. You still needed to trust people, right? And I think with uh, where we're at with Gen AI right now, I think the trust crisis is going to be the biggest one because if you can't trust what you're seeing online, you can't trust the websites you're going to, then it makes the internet fundamentally unusable. Like that's the end point, right? It's like, it's what we're seeing, like misinformation. We're starting to see that Cambridge Analytica, then moving into, you know, even um, the last presidential election in the US and in other parts of the world, um, we're having this postmodern crisis of like, what's real and what isn't. And it's kind of like whoever has the biggest audience and shouts loud enough wins, right? There's millions of people that support Donald Trump. Claims that the the presidential election was stolen, you know. And so Sam Harris, a philosopher, uh, podcaster himself, he he talks about this a lot. In that, you know, when we start bringing generative AI into out the public domain, it means the lack of trust on every angle, which means that breakdown of society, breakdown, and then you know, like that's why like. And this is a very dystopian point to almost close out with, but um, and you know, I, I think about technology and how it shifts influence, and we'd be talking about that a bit, right? Like, if you think about the printing press, the printing press was an innovation that helped people um, create books en masse and it introduced new religions, new ways of thinking, right? Um, but it also ushered in 200 years of religious wars across Europe, mm. so the printing press gave rise to revolutions gave rise to a whole bunch of things but it, it led to so much evil and suffering and gen AI is like the printing press but on you know a, a million times X scale of what you can do the cost of c- creating content used to be it actually used to cost things to create take, cost your time cost your effort you have to pay people to create content with generative AI, it costs you nothing and so when for, for society for it creates you nothing to to, to create like photorealistic type content or imagery or videos or, you know, songs or music, whatever it is. What that does is that it has the potential to actually send us into another 200 years of global war, famine and po- poverty and suffering. Like why wouldn't it? you know like and this is a message that you're never going to hear from the high pushes because i don't think this deeply about this stuff you <laughs> yeah. know the high pushes are going to be like no nah, look you know uh, generative ai is amazing but like but nobody knows these eight, eight secrets you know let read my thread on eight great secrets great prompts to get the best <laughs> out of chat gpt right they ain't talking about like yeah. they're not and then this is very different from ai doomerism, which is ai will enslave us this is something mm-hmm. even more i think catastrophic which is a total lack of societal trust in government in policy in the rule of law and all of those things and as a marketer, you know we have to think about that because marketers have a overwhelming influence on society, mm-hmm. and it's uh, you, the use of these tools have a big impact on how we think about that that influence as well. And so, I know it's an interesting time, but not people, mm-hmm. not many people want to hear that <clears throat> generative might bring us into two hundred years of war and famine. So. <laughs> <laughs>
2: We, we usually close out the, the podcast with a final question about how do you balance uh, happiness and and everything. But I feel like we need a, a, a cool-down question before we get there. So do you mind <laughs> if I slip a quick one in there? Um, and, and then maybe it will lead us down a dark path too. But like, I have a theory in my head that we're going to see this explosion of content, right? Content is king, content marketing. Everybody has been creating content for years. But now that we have these cheap tools... I'm terrified that we're going to see this explosion of content, and uh, obviously the decrease in value associated with it. You know, three of us are marketers, but I'm curious. One as a as a marketer, what advice would you give to consumers? You know, as marketers in the consuming mode, to be able to sort through all this noise and and find the human element, find the the wands who are actually writing, you know, content by hand still. Mm. I think it just
1: comes down to relationships. I mean, I think. Um, the relate like what the great thing about being social media is that it is social, um, and that you can build relationships. Like Phil and Al's relationship started on Twitter, you know, and then you know we just invited Phil on to be a judge at the TMW One Hundred Awards event, you know, um, and it's great, right? And the relationship builds over time, and um, relationships matter. I mean, mm-hmm. like the people that you know, the people you interact with daily. Um, I think that really matters from a consumer perspective, right? Trust their views, trust their feedback. Don't trust, Mm. you know, (laughs) the content mill, you know, and the, what you see in generative AI, right? Like increasingly when I'm looking at products and services, I'm not going to platforms like G2. I'm not going to like, you know, Mm -hmm. to go and buy technology. I'm looking at referrals. I'm looking, Hey, do I have a friend or a friend or a friend who's used something that can give me some good feedback because the human um, advice and the feedback like from real people, you know, in person preferably is probably a better way to navigate this stuff including how you might use chat GPT. Like this is a conversation that you, like, you have to have with people, right? If it's mm-hmm. with... You know, like this is new technology, but there is a lot of ancient wisdom, a lot of, you know, our parents and our grandparents can give us about how to deal with the world. Right. And that no, that stuff doesn't go away. Right. Like I'll still call my, you know, my grandfather and I'll say, hey, you know, say, um, I, well, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? And then they'll give me a story from like, you know, the seventies, right? And I'm like, whoa, okay. But, <laughs> right. Like the principles yeah. of relationships, I think even, even more, you have to dial up relationships, you know, like yeah. I'm not advocating from going into the office. That's not the argument I'm advocating mm-hmm. for like, you know, like there's a lot of people talking about work from home, go, work from the office. What I'm advocating for is spend more time with people in person, if you can, because that will give you the real stuff, right? Real opinions, real feedback, real emotions, real everything. And spend less time on the content mills and less time um, across uh, the social platforms. We're increasingly just being manipulated by AI and um, both AI in al- their algorithms, but AI in the content as well. So mm-hmm. that's my feedback is that, you know, and this is coming from a guy that spends, you know, we re- review like 250 articles a week. So I'm constantly online. So, you know, this is coming from a guy that's constantly aligned all the time. But, you know, when I want to talk about something serious, I'm going to be calling up Phil or John. I'm going to be talking to my friends. I'm going to be talking to my colleagues and my community. I'm not going to be out there searching for stuff these days.
2: I love it. That's a great answer. That's it's so yeah. cool. Um, so let's end on this uh, Juan, How do you, you, you're obviously super busy. You've got so much on the go. How do you find the balance between all the things that you're working on and staying happy in your life? Love your take.
1: Yeah. Um, I think it, like, I think my, my inspiration on this is Steve Irwin. Do you guys know who Steve Irwin is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah crocodile guy right and he's australian and um he's like super passionate like before he died he died from a stingray accident like tragedy but he was like the most passionate guy about wildlife conservation like the guy was just red like that's why he was like wrestling with crocodiles and making news He yeah. was like how do i like raise the awareness around wildlife conservation and teach the world about you know um about wildlife around nature, you know, so he got on TV, he, you know, done bunch of, you know, so much content, he opened up a wildlife park, you know, and he inspired a generation to get into, you know, wildlife conservation. So he's an Australian and we're very proud of him, you know, but uh, he's a bit of an inspiration for me because I think when it comes down to what keeps me happy is like mission, right? Like an actual mission to do stuff. You know, for us, it's making sense of marketing, like helping people navigate this incredibly and increasingly complex world of technologies and marketing. It's influenced society. It's influence on um, business, commercial outcomes, influence on customers and experience. Like we love that. And that's the thing that I do. And it's like, you know, every, you know, last night I was writing until midnight, 1am, having the time of my life because- there's a, there's a drive there. There's, there's answers, there's things I want to understand and, um, and want help, want to help others understand in much the same way Steve Irwin did. Right. So that's my view is that like, you have to, like, if you're not passionate, if you, if you're looking at something, you're like, this is a great job for me to earn money, then you're probably going to burn out. Like the best founders in the world are like driven, like they've got this like red hot, passion this vision for their life and for their community and their industry and they want to change things and make it better and it sounds naive but that's that's like the stuff that that's like kryptonite to burn out right you know that's mm-hmm. the stuff that keeps you going that's the stuff that's like I'm um, i'm red hot working hard on this working very hard you know outside of like get sleep you know eat healthy you know exercise the basics you know and focus on your relationships um like I think more of us just need, like the majority of people I talk to these days, they have no vision for their life. They just have no vision. They have like no idea. Like they're working a job and they go on the next thing and the next and the next thing. But when you find those people that like I'm trying to solve this problem and I'll spend the rest of my life doing it, those are the folks that you're like, yeah, I want to follow you, right? And I want to learn from you. And and those are the people who just keep going and going and going and going because they've got that vision. And they know where they're going, and so that's that's my um that's my view is that you, you have to, you have to be like more like Steve Irwin, you know. Love it, I love, <laughs> I love it. it,
0: Thank you so much for for uh, being on the show, Juan. I uh, definitely want to leave you a bit of time to plug some stuff. Uh, tell tell the listeners about uh, TMW One Hundred.
1: Yeah, I would love to. Uh, so you can go to the dot forward slash TMW One Hundred. Um, that's martechweekly.com forward slash TMW100. So what we're doing is, well, we're kind of extending on what we're doing with TMW is that we're trying to give clarity to the industry on who, which companies are actually innovating and doing interesting stuff, changing the game across new products and across how they serve their customer and, and across the business models that they're creating. Um, and so there's a bunch of stuff you can go and check out there. would love if you're working in a tech company, pass it on to your marketing manager. I'm sure they'd love to join. Um but we are ranking the global one hundred list. So we have twelve judges across the international community that are ranking the one hundred most innovative market tech companies. What they do is that they get vote, they get a set votes each and then they rank the one hundred. So they give us a list of hundred and then we chuck that to the public, to the community, to folks like you out. Uh, to vote and then we rank them from first place to 100th place uh we are bringing um the first second and third place over to mopspalooza um if you win you we get flights accommodation you know maybe a few free cocktails would be nice um but we announce the winners we do a bunch of stats and insights at the end of the year we're going to do a big report um you know first place gets their company on the front page uh, but we want that who's going to be the main character of martech um, type things. So, so for us, we're really excited for that. Um, you can go join us there, um, and. I guess if you'd like to subscribe, you can go to themartechweekly.com um, and you can subscribe to get our regular Sunday newsletter. Uh, we'd love to sort of see you in there. And um, of course, you can join the TNW community, a Slack community of uh, marketing tech geeks who uh, love this stuff, talk about it all day. Um, you know, that's also part of our subscription as well. So uh, I think I'm going to plug, that's enough stuff to plug for now, I guess. But uh, I just want to say thank you for having me on the show. It's just what a wonderful um, conversation of depth and rigor. I really appreciate it
0: yeah we we appreciate your time too one this was a uh, super fun i feel like we, we could have kept going at some point i just looked at the time and i was like holy shit like what where the time go? so yeah appreciate it man uh we'll uh we'll chat very soon uh, i'm excited to be part of uh tmw 100 and uh find some some cool martech companies to, to highlight so yeah thanks for your time thanks again